Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Hank Chen. You know, Mom and Dad, this really isn't about you, unless you're gay, and then I support you. <laughs> that and more. But before that, this opening segment will have no musical ads, so you might want to let your newcomer friends know that this episode is probably a safer one to start with. But I do want to take just a moment here to let you know about my friend Chris Castiglione's fantastic podcast, On Books. Each week on the On Books podcast, Chris pours some bourbon and chats with authors, highlights some of the most influential books of our time. In the latest episode, Chris chats with Neil Strauss, author of The Game and now the follow-up, the truth. They talk about the challenges of monogamy, the art of relationships, how to find better role models in our sex lives. You can check out other episodes where Chris talks with folks about books like Mating in Captivity, Sex at Dawn, Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, and my own episode where I talked about David Lynch's book, Catching the Big Fish. So go and download On Books. Do it for free on iTunes or go to on-books.com and check it out online. New episodes come out every Monday. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the legendary B.B. King behind me now. We are calling today's episode Tough Guys, and it's kind of a uh, multifaceted title. Both of these stories today are told by guys who had to learn to find and develop their own inner toughness in order to deal with tough guys coming at them. Just a heads up, there's violence in both these stories. It's a hell of an honor and a pleasure to have our first storyteller here on the show. Steve Deshavi is the co-host of the series The Dead Files on the Travel Channel. Steve has devoted 22 years of service to the NYPD, 13 of those as a homicide detective. He owns his own private investigation company, Diamond Eye Investigations now. And as you will hear, he's just a remarkable man. So without further ado, let's get right to it. This is Steve Deshavi with a story we call A Simple Twist of Fate. American growing up in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, and um, there's a very fine line between what you want to be in life when you're young. You grow up, 
There's gangsters everywhere. It's 1972. I'm nine years old. The Godfather comes out. So you think, oh my God, that's who I want to be. I mean, hey, who's better than a gangster? But I got a father who is a teamster, served in World War II, landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day. His four other brothers all served. I was named after my Uncle Steve who was killed in World War II. It, it, it's kind of like you're being torn between your family and the street. So for me, the street was more of a family because my older brothers both had issues that my mother was dealing with. You know, one, my oldest brother was an alcoholic. My other brother came back from Nam with the monkey on his back, was a heroin junkie. I got my father who is working all the time. I hardly ever see him. My mother's preoccupied worrying about her two other sons. So the streets became kind of my second family. You know, the guys I grew up with, and it's cliche, we all either wound up in jail or became cops. It was the craziest thing. You know, Bensonhurst was, you idolized the wise guys. You hated the cops. So now, you can fast forward, and now I'm like 13 years old. I'm in Coney Island at the Ape Stock ice skating rink. Look at me walking the streets with my brand new jacket, my Puma sneakers, and I'm with my friend Robert, and we get jumped by five 17 to 20 year old black guys. Two were beating on us, took my jacket, took my sneakers, left us in the cold. One eye was almost closed shut, I had one broken rib. Robert had a sliced uh, head, he needed stitches. Um, we were 13, getting jumped by 18, 19 year olds. So you could just picture that in your head, what it's like being surrounded. How scary that is, you're right near the boardwalk, but you're right by the projects, you're right by help, but you can't get to it. So I'm like, fuck, we're fucked, we're out here, we're freezing. We got no jackets on, we got no sneakers. And the thing that's going through my head is my father's gonna kill me for allowing somebody to beat the shit out of me. How am I gonna explain this? If you think of Luca Brazzi from The Godfather, that was my father. He's a scary guy, so trying to explain that? Ugh. A little tough. I swore that day I would never be a victim again, and I never was. I started carrying weapons, carried a knife. By the time I was 14 and a half, 15, I had my own gun, carried a 38 around with me. Started doing things, you know, I'm not proud of. I was selling drugs, I was doing stick-ups, stealing cars, and I'd sell tuna, second or Valium, Librium. Tower, you name it, I sold it. I bought my first car when I was 15, but I couldn't even drive because I didn't have a fucking license. So a lot of good it did me having this fucking car. I had a 75 Cutler Supreme, I bought cash. My father wasn't too happy about the fact that I was able to buy his car cash. So uh, I told him it was a gift from one of my friends that he had to get rid of the car. And I, you know, I made up some bullshit story. My father saw right through me, you know, there was no, no lying to him. So now, a couple of years later, I'm 17, I'm at home, the phone rings, I pick it up, and it's my father, to tell me, to tell mommy that um, he's not gonna come home tonight, because he's out, whatever he's doing. You know, my father used to drink down at the end of the, you know, the bar down the block, he drank his bourbon neat. So I just figured, you know, what's this bullshit, you're not coming home again? I haven't seen you. And we got into an argument, and I said to him, I said, I said to him, why don't you just drop dead? And he did that night. The last words I said to my father was, why don't you drop dead? 
and I hung up the phone on him. Five hours later, I get a call that he's dead from a heart attack. Up the block, on the floor. I remember running up the block and seeing him laying there. And the cops were going to, you know, his pants. And they, and they, hand, they saw me. They handed me his wallet. And it was all wet. And I didn't understand why. Until later on, as a cop, I learned that when people have heart attacks, they lose all their bodily fluids. And, you know, everything comes out. I guess it was from the urine. And... I remember holding on to this wet wallet, thinking to myself, why is this wallet wet? And not realizing what the fuck is in front of me. My father's dead, and I just told him to drop dead five hours earlier. And I just thought to myself, what kind of an animal am I that I tell my father to drop dead, and then he dies? I'm 52 years old, and I still can't wrap my head around it. I mean, I was, I was 17. I didn't mean it. I really didn't mean it. I just, I didn't think he would die. So, it just, I live with that regret every day of my life. And I know people say, no, he forgives you. And I just, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. It's just. And that's when I went off the reservation. So now I didn't have my father to deal with. Worrying about him throwing me a beating for everything I did that was bad. And I had gotten thrown out of high school already at this point. And to get thrown out of Lafayette High School back then, you had to be pretty fucked up because you know it was three thousand students. There was busing going on then. It was all kinds of shit happening, and and I was just such a bad student. I had gotten left back, and then they just they just said, you know what, you're too much trouble. Get the hell out of the school system. And I was too busy running around, you know, I'd rather hang out and I was making money hand over fish, selling drugs, doing robberies, do, you know, doing whatever the hell I wanted. One of my friends uh, that did a robbery that I wasn't in on and uh, I was supposed to be there that night, but they robbed the wrong guy. They robbed some wise guy's nephew and um, they fucking hung him. You can see it from the Bell Parkway in Coney Island where Pat Mark and Bensonhurst meet. There's a tree back there, and they fucking hung him up. They hung him up from that tree. How am I lucky enough not to have gone on that robbery? But how am I so unlucky to tell my father to go drop dead, and then he drops dead the same night? During the day, I would go down to the Sky Top Pool Hall, and I'd shoot pool all day. It was the Woolworths department store. It was in Brooklyn and Bay Ridge on 5th Avenue and 86th Street. And if anybody's old enough to remember that neighborhood back then, they'll remember the Woolworths. It was the Woolworths. Second floor was all the recruiters for the armed services. And the third floor was the Sky Top Pool Hall, where I'd spent from when I was 12 on in that pool hall. And, you know, I'd hustle pool, where I'd shoot pool with the owner that was up there. He was a pretty cool guy. But the recruiters used to come up and shoot pool on their lunch hour. Because you can see the Army guy, you see the Navy guy, you see the Air Force guy, but then when you see that, that Marine, it's like, wow. That's what a man's supposed to look like in uniform. Big, tall, square-jawed fucking guy that, you know, like, six-something. You see him, you think of a fucking poster boy for the Marine Corps. And it just, it blows you away the first time you see it really up close and personal. And this guy was a Vietnam vet, so he had a rack full of medals. And it just brought me back to what it was like 
listening to my father and his brothers and their stories about World War II and how proud that made me. His name was Staff Sergeant Bowen. I'll never forget him. And he looked at me, he goes, because he had seen me up there a couple of times. He's like, what are you doing with your life? Why aren't you in school type of thing? And I'm like, well, the fuck you care what I'm doing. It's none of your business what I'm doing. What are you writing a fucking book? You know, because that, that guinea in me from the neighborhood came out right away. I'm like, who the fuck are you to ask me where? You know, go ask me questions, jerk off. I don't know you. He kind of snickered at me. He says, you know what? You think you're a tough guy. He says, you know what a tough guy is? This guy that wears a uniform every day. That's a tough guy. And I says, yeah, whatever. You know, my old man was, you know, then I started talking about my father. And, you know, I'm named after my uncle who was killed on November 11th, 1942. So don't talk to me about serving your country. And he kind of looked at me and says, well, when are you going to take your fucking turn? Cause so he kind of gave it back to me, like, you know, don't be a jerk. I'm 17, I'm working out, I'm big, you know, I got muscles. Everybody in the neighborhood's pretty much terrified of me, except for the guys that I was scared of, you know. So I had that reputation. I'm like, what am I going to give this up for? But I also knew in the back of my head, I was either going to wind up in jail or I was going to get killed. I had to do something. Even at 17, I was smart enough to know, listen, asshole, don't be this stupid. So we, we talked, we went down to his office, and the next day I know, I says, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to sign up, let's go. And he goes, well, your parents got to sign for you, you're 17. And I'm like, well, fuck me. My mother will never sign, my father's dead at this point, he would have signed the papers, but my mother's never going to sign the papers, how am I going to win this? So <laughs> I said, all right, listen, let me work on it, I'm going to go home, talk to my mother, and then we'll work it out where you come to the house, and you can schmooze her the way you schmoozed me. And my mother's like, yeah, let him come. I'll make dinner for him. So he comes walking in. My mother sees him and, you know, she's like, wow. This, you know, she just looked at him and I, I think something in her head said, you know what? This might be a good thing for my son. I, she didn't know what she was signing, but she signed the papers within like 20 seconds when she saw this guy. And then he had down, he sat down, he had Monogoth with my mother. This guy was Irish. She wouldn't know fucking Monogoth if it hit him in the head, so... Oh, he was Polish. I forget what the hell he was. But either way, it doesn't matter. The guy got himself a good meal, and he got me uh, signed up to go into the Marines. Next thing you know, I'm in Paris Island, and I'm like, what the fuck did I do? You get off the bus at 2 o'clock in the morning, and that screamed at you to get on those yellow footprints. And unless you've been through Marine Corps boot camp, there is nothing in the world like it. And I'm like, what the fuck did I... What was I thinking? I could have been on the streets doing this, doing that, you know... <laughs> But, you know, 16 weeks later, I was a fucking Marine. There's no doubt about it. They fucking changed me from basically a punk kid. I was going nowhere. And just like that, boom, I'm a Marine now. Proud, walking straight, the whole nine yards. Next thing I know, I'm in a combat zone in the Middle East. And I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking again? <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, all right, great. At least I'm experiencing the same thing that my father, my, you know, I felt like I was doing two things. I was honoring my father and I was getting my shit together. So now I get out of the Marine Corps because my sister was smart enough to follow me for the police test and I'm going into the police academy. And had she had not done that, I don't know where I'd be because all I knew was to be a Marine and how to fight in combat. I had no, couldn't be a plumber. You know, I didn't have any skills or any education. So I come home from police academy one night. And my mother says, I haven't seen your brother. This is my brother who was a heroin addict. And he's always goes, you know, he disappears. We don't know what the hell he's doing. 
she says, I'm worried about him. You know how mothers are, they just know. And my mother was that way. She was an Italian mother who just knew. She just looked at your face and knew something was wrong or you did something or what the fuck are you hiding? You know, that's where I think I get my instincts from, actually. So she said to me, just go over and check. He lived about three blocks from us in Bensonhurst. It was a hot summer night. I remember I'm in my police academy uniform and it's like, uh, fuck me, you know, I'm, I don't want to walk, because you look like a bus driver, that was the uniform back then, I didn't want to walk around like that. So anyway, I walk up to my brother's apartment and I could smell it coming through the door. I could smell death. I had smelt it when I was growing up, you know, I knew what it smelled like. So I try kicking the door in, I can't get it open. There's no cell phones back then. There's no working pay phones anywhere, so I can't call anybody for help. I used, they had, it was a steel garbage can that must have weighed 50 pounds at the time. It was like using a battering ram. And I used that to break in the door. And then the smell really hit me. He had been dead for about four days. Uh, he still had the needle in his arm. And here's the irony of it all. I, the last conversation I had with my brother who died, I had an argument with him too. Actually, I had a fist fight with him. And that's how the last time I saw him was when me and him got into a fight. And <laughs> again, I never got a chance to say, I'm sorry about the fight. You know, we're brothers. And now I'm looking at him, he's dead. The cops show up and they see I'm in a police academy uniform. And the lieutenant that showed up started giving me shit. He started grilling me. There's heroin all over this apartment. You're in the police academy. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. back the fuck up. This is my brother. I, I don't live here. I live with my mother. I said, what are you talking about? He's like, well, this has got to be investigated. And my, like, no empathy at all. Like, hey, this is my, my dead brother was sitting in front of What the fuck is, you smell this? He's been dead for four days. Right there and then, I learned a quick lesson from that son of a bitch that night. I'm thinking to myself, you're a piece of shit. If you treat me like this, I can only imagine how you treat the fucking public. You know, I'm one of your own, or gonna be one of your own, and you treat me like this, you motherfucker. So I, I, right there and then I said, you know what, I will never ever treat anybody that way unless they deserve to be treated that way. And I've lived that way my whole life. I treat people accordingly. Now I gotta go tell my mother that my brother's dead. Greatest notification ever, right? Yeah. I did thousands of them while I was on the police department. And that one, telling my mother that he was gone, was a tough one. But you know, I looked at my mother and she had a look of relief on her face, which was almost eerie. And I thought about it later on. I says, yeah, she's been dealing with this fucking idiot and his habit for how many years? And now she doesn't have to worry about him anymore. So I got two debts now. My father, my brother, I'm in the police academy. I graduate. Because I was such a street thug, I became a really good street cop. You know the phrase, it takes a thief to catch a thief? It's actually true, believe it or not. Even during walking footposts, and I've seen a kid with a textbook in his hand. I'm walking on Myrtle Avenue in Brooklyn, and I'm like, it's fucking 10 o'clock at night. This jerk off thinks he's got me fooled. I walk over to him, I says, let me see your book. He's like, why? I says, give me the fucking book. I know what's in it because I did the same exact thing six years earlier. So I said, who are you bullshitting? I opened a book and sure as shit, it's all cut out and he's got bags of weed in there. So I just threw the fucking weed down the sewer and I kicked him in his ass and I said, get the fuck out of here. If I ever see you again, I'm going to knock you the fuck out, so get out of here. And that's what I call policing, you know. You let the guy know, listen, you ain't going to get over on me 
And he, you know, I never saw that kid again. So maybe I did something good for him. You know, I didn't have to arrest him. What am I going to lock him up for? He did, he did the same exact thing I was doing fucking five years earlier. So I'm like, I can't lock this kid up. And it's weed. You know, what the fuck? You know, my police career was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quickly, uh, moved, moved pretty fast because working my way up to homicide, I did on my own. Nobody made a fucking phone call once for me. I went to plain clothes because of all the arrests I made in uniform. I went from plain clothes to narcotics because I was so active in plain clothes. Got my gold shield, and all I wanted to do was be a detective and be in a detective squad. Because I used to look at those guys, and it brought me back to the recruiter. It brought me back to the days of my father and his brothers and how squared away they always were. And when the detectives showed up in their suits, I'd look at them, and I'm like, wow, here they come. You know, get the fuck out of the way. Here comes the big boys. And that's who I wanted to be. And I wind up being that guy that when I showed up, everybody knew, hey, Steve and his partners are here. Let them take over and let them do what they got to do. Which brings me to a homicide case I had back in 2002. I'm sitting in my office. I had just finished working on a double homicide in Washington Heights. It was a drug dealing thing. It was a home invasion. And it was a guy and a woman that got murdered and it was a long five days working on this case and uh, you know we made an arrest so it was you know typical ghetto drug dealers killing drug dealer type stuff so it was not nothing I wasn't used to seeing I mean you can't appreciate what a bloody mess it could be until you're up close and personal it's almost like it's so fucked up it's not real when you see these dead bodies it's like wow is that even real but know what brings you home to that the smells that go with it. And those smells with the actual scene, put those two together, is shit you'll never forget. I still to this day don't forget it. I was in a morgue a couple of weeks ago, and as soon as I walked in, I'm like, man, that smell. Just, I remember this so well. So I'm working one night in homicide, and uh, the next thing I know, I get a phone call. Hey, Steve, this is so-and-so from the 2-3 Detective Squad. We got four people stabbed, one kid's likely to take him over to the hospital. So I didn't think anything of it that night. I said, all right, I'm going to go to the hospital, see if I can get something from the kid. If he's not, if he doesn't go out of the picture, maybe I can get a statement before he dies. This is what I'm thinking because I'm just thinking like a homicide guy and I'm not thinking like I can give a shit about this. It's just another homicide. I didn't realize the kid that got stabbed was 13 years old. So I get to the hospital in their uh, triage area. I said, where's the kid? And he's behind a curtain. As I'm walking in behind the curtain, I see the doctor taking the chest plate. They already opened the kid up. They took the chest plate off and they're massaging his heart by hand. Now I've seen this a million times. It's not something I didn't see before. But when I looked at the kid, I'm like, fuck, he's 13 years old. I gotta get the motherfucker that did this because this is pissing me off. The kid's DOA at the hospital. He was dead before they even cracked him open. It was blood everywhere. So now the parents are there at the hospital. The doctor lets him know that he died. And now they're hysterical. Now picture two Spanish parents that hardly speak English and their 13-year-old kid is dead. And I got to go up to them and I have to, I have to talk to them to see if they know anything that might help my case. Because time's of an essence on a homicide. 
I told my partner, I says, uh, I got to talk to the parents. We got to find out if they know anything. And they're like, oh, he's a good boy. And I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever. They all say that shit, you know. But when I spoke to the parents, I was thinking to myself, wow, these are really good people. You know, these are really sweet immigrant Dominicans that you could tell that they were just hardworking family. And their family meant everything to them. And now I'm trying to get information from them, and they were just hysterical. They hardly speak English. My partner spoke Spanish, thank God. But we couldn't get anything from them that would help the case because they're like, he's a good boy. He doesn't do anything. He says he hangs out downstairs with his friends playing ball in the projects. And I'm like, yeah, all right, so that's typical. Nothing crazy there. All right, so he's dead. The parents can't help me. What do we do? What do we do is we go back to the scene. So we go to the scene. They took the other three kids that were stabbed to a different hospital because it was in a trauma unit. So they took them to a different one. They took this kid to a trauma unit. So I couldn't even talk to the other victims yet to see what was going on with them. But there was another team of detectives at that hospital talking to them, trying to get the information on who might have did this. So now I go back to the crime scene. It's all caught and off, and I see the blood against the car. I'm like, well, this is fucking odd. Why is there blood against the car? All right, I guess when he stabbed the kid, he fell back, and he hit the car, and, you know, that was it. Turns out I get a phone call from one of the detectives at the hospital with one of the victims, the other victims that survived, and he says, yeah, he says, the kid he killed wasn't even involved in the fight. He was just sitting on the car watching. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, yeah, the DOA had nothing to do with this. She says, yeah, the other victim's like 19, 20 years old. This kid was just there watching it. So I'm like, well, that's fucked. What happened here? So now I do my street thing because I'm a good street cop. And I just walk around the projects, checking things out, being quiet, hands in my pocket. And I get some kid comes up to me, and he's like standing behind me. He says, yo, the kid that did this, he's Spanish. He's got green eyes. And he hangs out at the YMCA down on 100-and-something street. I'm like, okay, Spanish kid with green eyes, that's pretty rare. I'm making like he's not talking to me, so I cover my mouth, you know, I'm like, well, how old, how old do you think this fucking kid is, you know? And I'm trying to get an interview without anybody knowing that this kid's talking to me in the middle of the projects. Now, this is nighttime, in the fucking summer, in the middle of the projects in Spanish Harlem. So now try picture me fucking Guido in his fucking pinstripe suit but for some reason he knew he could talk to me and he knew I wasn't going to give him up so I guess that comes off and the streets have their own language and he gives me this tip so I called the guys at the hospital that interviewing the three other guys that survived and they gave the same description of the kid but they didn't know where he was from we didn't know it at the time but this kid had interactions with those three scumbags at the hospital that didn't die over and over again. I didn't know why they had interaction with the guy. They didn't say they had interaction with him. But when the investigation kept going, we wound up getting him identified. And the reason we got him identified was we went to the YMCA and got photos of all the kids that had IDs there. Sure as shit, there's only one Spanish kid with green fucking eyes that goes to that place. One of my guys took the photo array to the three guys that got stabbed by him, and they 100% identified him. He's 16. We go to the house to see if he's there, and he's not there. 
All right, great. We know who he is. So I talked to him. I said, listen, we don't know what happened that night. All we know is he stabbed four people and he killed one for no fucking reason. And she's like, whoa, 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 detective, relax. You don't understand what's going on here. Like, what do you mean? And I'm thinking to myself, who the fuck are you talking to? I know what's going on here. Turned out, that kid was getting beat up every fucking day by these three scumbags as he was walking home. And no matter where he went, he said, Ma, I try going this way. They used to follow me coming out of the YMCA. They robbed me six, seven times. So this kid was a victim just like I was when I was 13. And from the time I was 13 and I started carrying a weapon, I'm thinking to myself, fuck, this kid, what happened to him happened to me. And I'm like, fuck, maybe he's not such a bad kid. So we, we find out he had no arrest record either. That was the other thing. This kid never been in trouble. He was a good student. He was, a, you know, he was on a swim team. I'm thinking to myself, well, fuck, he probably started carrying a knife because he got beat up just like I started fucking doing after I got jumped. I'm like, fuck me. I could either have been that victim in the hospital because they could have killed me that fucking night or I could have been the guy who did the murder. And, and, and my whole youth just came fucking rushing back into my head like how lucky I've been. Now the kid is not a bad kid. The kid that's dead, the re what happened was when we pieced it all together, he was just sitting there watching the fight, leaning up against the car. The kid that did the murder went into a rage and just started slashing at everybody that came near him. He saw this kid on the car and he just stabbed him right in the fucking chest. Our victim had nothing at all to do with it. So you talk about a tragedy? I mean, this is the kind of shit that happens in the ghetto and cops and the people that live there are the ones that have to deal with this crap. People that lived up on the Upper East Side have no fucking clue what's going on in life. They don't have a fucking iota of what really is happening on the street. So thinking, well, we, this kid's got to get arrested, obviously, you know, so we start looking for him. He's not, he's not at the house. So I decide with, with the guy from one of the precincts that it happened, and I said, you know what, let's go to the building in the projects, because they have the office that the management office keeps all paperwork in regards to anything that happens in the apartment that somebody lives in. So I looked through the folder, and sure as shit, the mother got into a domestic, and her sister was marked down as a witness, and she had an address in the Bronx. I said, I'll bet this fucking kid's up in the Bronx at his, at his hand's house. Sure enough, take two teams, me, my one guy and another team, knock on the door. I said, we hear this, you know, Luis, we know Luis is here, so just tell him to come on out. No, you're, no, Luis ain't here. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, detective. I said, listen, it's easier if he just turns himself in. The more he runs, it's going to look worse for him. I know what happened. I know what happened. This poor kid shouldn't have died but then again I know what was going on with your nephew next thing I know I see the, it's a hallway and I hear shuffling and I, the kid turns the corner I see those fucking green eyes just looking at me I just gave him that nod like come on you know we gotta go you know that I remember thinking to myself how respectful he was and he's like hi detective I'm Luis I know you're looking for me but I have a lawyer's card. I want you to have it. They told me not to talk to anybody. I have, a, I have an attorney. And putting the handcuffs on that kid, this rush of emotion that came over me, all I kept thinking to myself is, fuck, this could have been me. It was so easily could have been me. I got lucky. So I cuff him up, and I can, he's trembling, 
and he's not like the typical mutt that I always arrested, you know, like, real thugged out. He wasn't that kid. Driving back to the station house with him that night, and I said to him, uh, I know what you went through, brother. I, I get it. It's okay. I get it. And he just said to me, he says, I didn't mean for it to happen. I, I hope that kid's life changed. I, I hope jail didn't fuck him up. He deserved to go to jail, but again, the streets dictated what the fuck happened. The streets dictated this. Nothing else. The streets did it. You have one kid didn't do anything wrong, and another kid was doing nothing wrong, and three other fucking scumbags that should be in the fucking ground. You know, people cause other people to do things. And then there's people that get caught in a crossfire. Like, if you took my life and put it into a spin where you could see your whole life revolving... That case took me to that level of just like picturing my life just circling around me and like, fuck, I, that could have been me there. That could have been me here. Oh, shit. You know, my whole life's been nothing but a combat zone. Uh, I've been officially diagnosed with PTSD by the government. So between what I saw in the streets of New York as a cop, then a homicide detective, and then 9-11 and all this other stuff, you know, I guess it all caught up to me and... Uh, it is what it is. Everybody's got PTSD of some sort or another. Everybody's been traumatized. I don't, I don't dwell on it. I actually always thought it was a, a cop-out. And then I realized it's really not a cop-out. People need help. I need help. So I do go to a therapist now. And for me to admit that, that's, that's a lot. You know, it's hard for a guy like me to admit that I would actually see a therapist. That one particular case just took me so far back into my life of how I grew up and the things that happened to me and how things can just turn on a dime, you know, that recruiter saved my life, basically, over a game of fucking pool. This is risk. This is peas <laughs> behind me now. <laughs> I don't know why, but it just cracks me up. This band, they're they're named after the tiny little round vegetable. They're just called peas. Uh, you know, you gotta laugh at whatever you can take. This this episode today is intense. 
Our second story is going to be equally intense. And then next week, all funny stories. You know we like to switch it up. Our next story today comes from someone who I now consider a dear friend. I'll tell you, both times that Hank Chen has told a story at the Risk Live show at Nerdist in Los Angeles, he has just poured his heart and soul into the story as you are about to hear. Hank is now on so many TV shows, I, I can't keep track anymore. He's been on Transparent, Community, Criminal Minds, Grace and Frankie. He's a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> you can find him on Twitter at Hankster Chen. Here he is at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call What Kind of Friend? Hi guys, I'm Kumail. <laughs> Different Asian? Yeah. We need more Indian Asian actors here to replace the ones that don't show up. No, but God bless him. So I'm really glad. Wow, who did I? Are, who are the Asians in the house? Any Asians in the house? A little bit? Some? Like five of you? I just took a shot of bourbon in the back room to kind of like chill everything out so I might get a little pink throughout the show, but you guys understand. So you're on my side. We're good. White people ask your Asian friends. You'll know what I'm talking about. I am very glad to be here, specifically during this time uh, in 2015, because this time five years ago in 2010, I was completely broke. I was beyond broke. I mean, I was living in New York and the struggle was so real because I just left grad school in between student loans and credit cards. I had amassed nearly six figures. I mean, I would be on the subway and people would be asking me for money. I'd be like, okay, dude, okay, you might be at zero. I'm at negative $96,000. <laughs> I want to be you. You inspire me. Negative $96,000. Get out of my face. Okay? Right. Now, when people get stressed, some people gain weight, some people lose weight, some people lose their hair, bags under their eyes. I, I, I get zits, okay? I get pimples all, like, face, neck, back. I mean, it's like pimples on top of pimples, like, like little condos. Just, just grow, like, just... Like in, like in a third world country, just stacked on top of each other. And, and, and now I know, so that way whenever I get a fresh one, I'm like, okay, who did this to me, all right? What do I have to change? Who do I have to defriend? What do I have to block? What do I have to quit? And uh, my dog, he's this beautiful black Labrador mix, and he was getting so skinny because I had um, reduced our rations. And I didn't realize how bad things were because I saw him every day, and he's such a happy dog. But people started stopping me on the street, and they were like, oh, my God, your dog, he's like his ribs. And I'm like, is he, is, he, is he from a shelter? You rescued him from a shelter? I was like, yes, yes, I did, except this was two years ago. And when I realized that my dog looked worse than when I first rescued him, I mean, I, I could almost put both my hands around the bottom of his spine. I knew that my life was insane. It was like he was in some kind of doggy concentration camp, which was my apartment. <laughs> Things had to change. And winter 2010 was also different because for the first time in my life, I was spending it without any family. Because earlier that year, I don't know if you remember, but... 
a bunch of gay kids had killed themselves and it made national news and it spurned something called the It Gets Better campaign on YouTube and I decided to make a video. And I was out in my private life because honestly, who can fucking hide this? (laughs) But in my public life and online, I was raised very religious, very Asian, and Asians are homophobic and so I just didn't feel like getting into it with everybody on Facebook and having 500 people preach to me and you know, these are the same people that like save themselves from marriage and they feel guilty when they masturbate, they're voting for Trump, like you know the type. So my parents saw this It Gets Better video. They lost their minds, right? Uh, how could I do this to them? Oh, my God, blah, 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 blah. Why would I? And I was like, you know, Mom and Dad, this really isn't about you unless you're gay, and then I support you. <laughs> but what, what, I, what I, I, I couldn't deal with it because there was so much going on already. You know, my dog and I were on permanent diets that I just couldn't put up with this additional stress and emotional and verbal abuse. And so for the first time in my life, I made the choice to be without a family and hope that my life would be for the better. Well, without that biological support system, I drew my friends in closer. And when I did a census, I realized I was like, most of my close friends are straight. That's that's interesting. I mean, guys and girls. And I, I figured it might be like the girl guy thing amongst you breeders, where, um, you know, like if like being friends with a gay guy, I mean, we could hook up and muddle things. But, you know, if a straight guy is comfortable with themselves and comfortable with being friends with me, then the boundaries were always there and you kind of always knew where you stood. Uh, they were like the brothers that I always had. And today, some friends that I'm even very close with have admitted that they would have been the ones to push me into a locker or call me a faggot 10 years earlier. And to bring them into my inner circle now as an adult feels kind of like a personal accomplishment. So in that crazy winter, enter someone we'll call Walter one of my straights. And Walter and I, we knew each other. We've seen each other around, uh, you know, a couple of years auditioning, and uh, he, uh, we caught up occasionally, and around this time, right before Thanksgiving, we decided to get a bowl of pho. And turns out he had just come back from some summer program in London, and he was couch surfing and living out of his van. I mean, he was essentially homeless and (laughs) struggling as an actor and really trying to squeeze that dollar. And I was like, oh my God. But, you know, I was like, well, wait till you hear my story. I told him about my parents and he said the nicest thing to me. He said, you know, hey man, and I'm going to read this because I want to quote it correctly. He said, you know, I hope your mom can eventually find a way to support you as the son and not as this person whom she has to try to change. It was nice. You know, that year I also had an offer for a trade show that was going to take me to San Francisco, make a little bit of money, and I was going to be gone for a little while, and I needed someone to watch my very skinny dog. And Walter, since he was living out of his van, I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. I said, hey, dude, why don't you come off the street, stay at my place for free while uh, I'm on the road, and just, like, use my shit, right? Like, use my dishes, sleep in my bed. It's totally fine. Like, get your stuff together. Why don't you reevaluate everything and uh, figure things out? Winter is coming. (laughs) All of you Jon Snow fans. Walter came over that night with a bag, and I was leaving for San Francisco that morning, and when it came time to go to bed, my one bed in my one-bedroom apartment, I uh, said, hey, dude, uh, you know, I mean, he's 6'3", I spared him the discomfort of my Ikea couch by saying, you can just crash with me in my bed if you promise not to molest me. (laughs) 
And I wanted to say that to diffuse the awkwardness that could happen between gay and straight people when it's like, hey, man, I just wanted to clarify I'm not hitting on you. It's not like that. And Walter immediately got it. And so he... Uh, and I, in t-shirts and boxers, slept next to each other that night. And it was probably one of the most peaceful sleeps. Rests. What's the word? It's one of the most comforting sleep sleeps that... Uh, we'll figure that out. <laughs> we shared what was probably the best sleep we both had in a very long time. There we go. He's not the first platonic friend that I've ever uh, shared a bed with. Right? It's, I think it's a very millennial thing. Everyone's doing it. And you have to admit, there is kind of an intimacy with shared sleep, no matter who it's with. And for me, I like, I like the gentle snoring. You know, I like the weight of the other side of the bed being balanced out by another human being. Someone I trust. Someone who trusts me to know that I'm not going to roll over and slice their throat in the middle of the night. <laughs> And so, you know, the bed felt a little warmer and a little more snug with him lying next to me. And I think we were exactly what the other person needed at that time. Walter called me while I was at work in San Francisco. Happy Thanksgiving, Brosif. And he and Eli were getting along so swimmingly that he uh, started calling himself the dog father. You know, like Godfather, my dog father. And it's cute, right? Um, and I came home early in December, and we figured that this was actually a situation that could actually work out. His sister had come by and stayed with him over Thanksgiving, grateful that it was an apartment and not a van, and said, hey, you know, if Hank is looking for a roommate, you know, why wouldn't you stay here? And so we made it official. You know, we built temporary walls, floor to ceiling, in my uh, fairly sizable Brooklyn living room and turned my one bedroom into two. And we got along really, really well. Um, even though he couldn't afford to pay rent yet until January, I didn't mind because I was just so happy to begin this new chapter of my life. It felt so right and I was so ready to move forward. This newfound confidence also spilled over to my professional life because shortly into the new year, I booked my first job, Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Dun dun. <laughs> I have to say that every time. Uh, you know, coming out changed everything. I mean, I started walking into audition rooms no longer afraid to just simply show me, right? Here I am. And after years of not working and starving, I started landing roles on television. You know, with a good friend like Walter to come home to every night, everything just felt right. He was kind of messy. You know, he didn't do his dishes, which drove me crazy, right? Most of those aren't mine, Brosif. But I put up with it because there were a lot of things that I really liked about him. I mean, we shared rent. He looked after my dog. He was someone I could hang out with. And we wingmanned each other at bars. Okay, so everyone take notes. This is how it works, right? So a gay guy and a straight guy walk into a bar. And what happens is the girls start talking to us and hitting on us like we're a couple. Oh, my God, you two are so cute together. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 we're not a couple. But, um, you know, this is my straight friend. And we're, we're, yeah, we're best friends. We're close. But, yeah, he's like my straight husband. He's straight. And, and Walter would jump right in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my, this is my gay husband. Yeah, this is my, yeah, we love each other. And the girls would lose their shit. <laughs> Oh my God, your friendship is so progressive. You're so open-minded. He's gay and you're straight and you're totally cool at a gay bar. Oh my God, what are you doing later? Take my number. Like, he, he, he usually got him laid. 
And of course, these are the same bitches that come crying to me when they wanted more and he didn't. (laughs) Playing house was fun with Walter. And by summer 2011, it started to feel like we were actually married. Ironically, New York had also legalized gay marriage around this time. I mean, we regularly said, I love you. And even some nights he would just jump into my bed and crash with me because we both love the company. And I know what you guys are thinking. You're like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, this gay guy is falling in love with his straight roommate. And it wasn't like that. We loved each other, but it was complex with very defined boundaries. And even though our relationship definitely appeared romantic, there was never any actual sexual chemistry. That summer, I won a free trip to Los Angeles. I was still living in New York at the time, and I was like, oh my God, these contests are for real. And because I wasn't (laughs) dating, yeah, they're not scams, guys. Subway sandwiches, four days. Los Angeles was a great trip. (laughs) $5 foot long, addicted. Not a pedophile. So, too soon. Uh, So, I took Walter to Los Angeles, and after months of living together and sleeping in the same bed, something happened in the W Hotel on Hollywood and Vine that had never happened before. In the middle of the night, Walter wrapped his arm around my chest and one of his legs around my waist. I I I froze. About 20 minutes later, he recoiled back onto his side of the bed. And the next morning, we had our, you know, how did you sleep? And I said, well, I was fine until you tried to cuddle with me and woke me up. (laughs) It was a joke. He quickly was like, I remember that. And he wanted to go down to the lobby and change rooms so that we would have separate beds so that we could each have more space, which is what we did. I met another side of Walter in L.A., As part of the contest, I had a free concert at the House of Blues, and while I was there, I ran into a friend from New York who had just moved out here. And Trevor gave Walter and I a ride back to the W Hotel after the concert, and I'm trying to catch up with Trevor, but because Walter is inebriated, thanks to the open bar, he's in the back seat spewing drunk nonsense as I'm trying to talk, and I'm like, Walter, can you please be quiet? And he was like, shut the fuck up, Hank, and I was like, you shut the fuck up, and he was like, you shut the fuck up, and then he grabbed my shoulder, I was like, get your fucking hands off me, and he said, I fucking love you, Hank Chen, I said, don't fucking touch me, Walter, he said, fucking love you, and he wouldn't let go, and things shifted. They were never the same because I never seen the side of him before. We known each other for years. He had never grabbed me or physically hurt me in this way. And I would have to say that if it weren't for the fact that Trevor was in the driver's seat going, okay guys, okay you two, all right, all right now. I would have been really scared, I think, if it had just been the two of him. He's a big guy. The next morning, I woke up to a bruise on my shoulder and Walter lying in his bed next to mine. He was groggy. What happened, man? I said, dude, you, uh, you got drunk and you kind of like lost your temper and uh, uh, you know, one of my best friends, but I can't have you talking to me like that. He grabbed my hand in his. Sorry, man. Yeah, I love you. I love you too, I told him. That fall, my career continued to progress. You know, I landed a digital brand deal from some of my YouTube work that paid me $60,000 and took a big chunk out of my student loans. Fuck you, Sally Mae. <laughs> That's right. Walter didn't seem so happy for me as he had before in the beginning of the year. And for the first time in our living situation, there was a lot of tension. I would ask him to do basic things like, 
hey man, you know, there's a lot of dishes in the sink that have been here for a few days. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cook dinner. Can you, would you mind doing them? You want me to do the dishes, Hank? Picks up a dish from out of the sink, throws it across the kitchen wall, and runs into his room. There, the dishes are done, leaving me to clean up the ceramic shards and pieces of food lying all over the floor. I try to get through to him. I gave him leads for temp jobs. I submitted his information to the trade show company that I was working for. They took a pass. The YouTube brand that I was working for hired him as a PA, uh, and they agreed. Uh, they said they would hire him if I agreed to let him stay in my hotel room so they could save money while we were on the road. It would affect the budget. And of course, I said yes, because we were good friends. We were you know, living together. I was very comfortable. Why not? The thought of doing all these things for him when he was feeling so down and explicably angry, I, I, I was doing it because he had done so much for me and brought so much into my life and I wanted to make things better. But being on the road together only amplified the tension. Like when I wanted to come home after a long day and watch the Oprah Winfrey Network and learn about how to live my best life, <laughs> he would change the channel without asking me to sports or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> When we're on the road and it's time to buy lunch, he told me that I should pay for his because I was making more money than he was. My breakouts came back. The thick makeup that I applied every day could not cover the cysts that were appearing on camera and our client had to degrade the quality of the footage in order to hide the inflammation on my skin. And even though we shared the same hotel room, Walter and I no longer slept in the same bed. I guess we weren't so comfortable anymore. And as our small production crew for our internet project bounced around to a bunch of different cities, Boston, DC, Philly, I was really looking forward to bringing our stressful trip to a close after our final city, Baltimore. And in Baltimore, on the night before our final shoot date, Walter and I had drinks with our client and then we went back to our room and I expected another night of gloomy silence from him, as usual. But Walter, inebriated from a couple of beers, climbed into my bed, just like he had done in the W Hotel. For the first time, he climbed back into my bed months later. And just like he had done that night, he wrapped his arm around my chest and he put his leg over my waist. What is happening? I froze. He was hard. And then he slowly pushed my head down towards the foot of the bed and he pulled his cock out and he stuck it in my mouth. And then he held my head to his crotch as he forced me to suck him off. You like that, Hank? He asked. I told myself that I should try to enjoy it. Maybe I wanted it. But whatever I did, I couldn't let him see how scared I was because then he would win. He pulled me back up to the head of the bed. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe it's done. Maybe we can just go to sleep now. He pushed me face down, my head into a pillow, and then he got on top of me, the weight of his body behind me. And at that point, I just gave up resisting I wanted it to be done with. I heard him spit into his mouth. I felt 
his fingers penetrate my anus. Is this what you want, Hank? Is this what you want? Ouch, Walter, ouch, stop. He shoved his erection inside of me and raped me. Walter and I are no longer friends. The extricating of him from my life was as painful and arduous as you would imagine. The next morning, on our final shoot day, he threw a tantrum over something stupid and threw a suitcase across the hotel lobby, prompting security to intervene. Our client, as a result, canceled the day and then sent us on flights back home to New York, which also got canceled because Baltimore had started to snow. Everything around me was shutting down. Walter texted me he was taking an Amtrak. I stayed back in Baltimore and checked into a different hotel because, hey, I had money now. He started calling me repeatedly. I didn't pick up. He called some of our friends and told them that he was worried about me, said that we got into a fight and that he was trying to apologize, but I wouldn't answer his calls. I stayed in Baltimore out of fear, and then I emailed him and told him to get his shit out of the apartment. He moved out a few weeks later, and it was November 2011, exactly a year after when he first moved in. He proceeded to terrorize and stalk me the preceding year, a year in which he reapplied for the company that hires me for trade shows, and not knowing the situation, they hired him. I talked to their attorney who told me that they wanted physical evidence. And I said, I didn't take a picture of my bloody anus or swab semen out of my mouth eight months prior. To them, I was a nuisance, and they did not believe me. I went down to Baltimore to file a police report eight months after the fact, just to have it on record, you know, to protect myself. I just wanted to move on, and Walter was making it extremely difficult to do so. Walter quit right before we were forced to work together. I suppose there were some red flags along the way. I gave him so much credit for bringing some semblance of stability and positive change into my life. And I think at that point in my life, I was so desperate for some kind of support and community that I was willing to just hold on to whatever driftwood floated by before I knew it, I was in too deep. He wanted some kind of power, and I guess he finally got it the only way he felt he was able to. We still have a lot of mutual friends, and I never know when I'm going to be blindsided on my Twitter feed or on social media by a photo of him or a mention. Friends feel like they want to catch me up. Hey, didn't you used to live with Walter? Yeah, he just booked a commercial. Okay. They don't understand why I can't just get over the fight that we had. This past Thanksgiving, yeah, like, I don't know, three weeks ago, I saw him. We saw each other. Because I didn't have any physical evidence, I suppose the charges were dropped, and he asserted his right to reenter the trade show circuit. And even though we were in the Orlando Convention Hall with 50-foot ceilings and thousands of people around us, it felt like for a brief moment the universe collapsed and expanded just around the two of us tethered by this invisible umbilical cord, the same one that bonded us half a decade ago. It had been five years, five years since I was completely broke, negative 
five years since I fully came out online, and five years since I spent any holidays with my immediate family. This time, five years ago, winter 2010, Walter came from out of his van, off the street, and into my life at a time when we both needed each other the most and altered it in ways that I never could have imagined. What the fuck is he doing here? Is he stalking me again? We stared at each other, and then we looked past each other. Guilt, shame, and anger passing through the night. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is alabama shakes behind me now don't forget that risk has our first show in our new home in new york at the bell house in brooklyn on the 27th of january and then on the 28th we are at the nerdist showroom in los angeles on the 10th of February, we're in Carborough, North Carolina. On the 12th of February, Austin, Texas. The 13th, Houston. The 14th, Dallas. Now, the pitches deadline for those four shows uh, has already passed, but if you really do have a burning need to, to pitch us, Carborough, Austin, Houston, Dallas, you can always reach us at pitches at risk-show.com. On the 10th of March, we return to Chicago, Illinois. The theme is ecstatic. So pitch us for that one, guys. On March 26, it's Washington, D.C. And the theme that night is powerless. In April, these dates have yet to be set in stone. But we're thinking of coming to Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland, Oregon. So stay tuned about that. There's plenty more to learn about what we're up to at risk-show.com. And remember, there's always our storytelling training, one-on-one over Skype, our video lecture series, our corporate workshops, 
That's all at thestorystudio.org. And if you love what we do here at Risk, keep in mind, we're an independent business again, and we are listener-supported. So anything you can give, just visit us at the Support Us page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. So I'm like, fuck, 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 fuck. Watch your fucking mouth. Well, fuck you care what I'm doing. It's none of your business what I'm doing. What are you writing, fucking book? <laughs> <laughs>